Hello, welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. As always, Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I discuss how to make changes in life that actually stick. We've all had the unpleasant experience of trying and failing to make changes in life. It could be a habit you're trying to break or form, a career or business that you want to start or grow, a skill you want to develop, a relationship dynamic that you want to shift, or something else. You try and try again, but nothing changes. So in this episode, Reed and I are going to discuss why that happens and how to make satisfying changes that are actually durable. Reed and I get asked by helping professionals all the time where they can get good training on how to use psychedelics in clinical practice. Well, Numinous has several great psychedelic therapy training programs. You can check them out by clicking the link in the show notes, or you can go directly to numinous.com forward slash hour dash training dash selection and use the code PDF10, that is PTF10, for 10% off selected trainings. If you've listened to a few of our episodes, you've heard Reed and I talk about the psychedelic clinical trial work that Numinous does. If you or someone you know is interested in being a participant in a psychedelic clinical trial, you can click on the link in the show notes or go directly to Numinous.com forward slash research to learn more about the trials we're currently running. And of course, if you'd like to support our show, you can do so by leaving us a review or a rating in places like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you're listening on one of those platforms, just real quick, give us a hopefully five-star rating and leave a little written review. We read them all. It really means a lot to us. So please, if you've got a moment, go do that for us. Without further ado, I bring you our conversation today about making changes that stick. And we're back. Another episode of Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. How are you doing, Reed? Very well, thanks. How are you, Steve? Good. Yeah, also doing well. A little tired from an eventful Halloween party weekend. <laughs> Went to two different yeah. parties. Had a great time. But yeah, ready. Ready for a stimulating conversation here on our glorious podcast. We've had some awesome guests lately, but mm-hmm. I will admit it's fun to just chat amongst ourselves. Yeah. I really enjoy it. Yeah, me too. Today, we decided we want to chat a little bit about making changes that stick or how to make changes stick. We've talked a bit about habit. I think we had an episode over a year ago about habits specifically. But uh, yeah, we thought we'd revisit the subject and have a nice, fun, meandering conversation about making change in one's life. You know, it makes me think of the book title, How to Change Your Mind. Mm. Uh, Great book. that really helped uh, spark the renaissance into the limelight, the psychedelic renaissance. But changing your mind is just part of the equation. It kind of syncs up with what we talk about with what to do next. Mm. Like, how do you take insights, ideas, hopes, and dreams and kind of make them your reality and make them lasting changes? Yeah, yeah. So a lot that's relevant here with respect to integration after a psychedelic experience um, we won't be talking about that exclusively, but yeah, I think it's on brand, certainly, for the kinds of stuff we talk about on this show. Yeah, and way more on brand for day-to-day life than than psychedelic therapy, but yeah, certainly applies to both. Yeah. So when I think about making change in one's life, I often like to slow down and zoom out 
mm-hmm. and take a look at this change that you know you might think that you want to make and uh, ask yourself first what are the assumptions that you're making here um, is this a change that needs to be made uh, you know do you really need to make it why why not let's generate some awareness you know around the desire to change this specific aspect whether it's a habit whether it's a you know something that you identify as or identify with bring some loving awareness some compassion some curiosity mm-hmm. to this drive or this desire to change and see what you can learn from it see what you can learn about it before you get too far down the road of making a change yeah i love that it uh starts to paint a bird's eye view of what we might meander through in this conversation is, you know, the thoughts we have um, routinely about maybe I'd like to do this or that, but when they become an intention, you're planting a seed and then it becomes a behavior that may or may not stick. And if it sticks, it's becoming a habit. And then it's one of your practices, if Mm -hmm. you will. And then it's like second nature and then it's simply who you are. It's like that saying that how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. Mm-hmm. I like that metaphor of planting a seed, right? Is, and you're at the seed stage. That's probably the stage you want to be really sure that this is the plant or the fruit or whatever that you want to <laughs> cultivate. Don't plant the wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> of course, we also don't want to get too wrapped around the axle about that because we can stay paralyzed with you know, it with sort of the, the, uh, paralyzing feeling of indecision. Is this something I really want to do? Mm-hmm. Something I really want to try something I really want to change into grow into. Yeah. There's a balance to be struck there. Big time. And we've talked about perfectionism and it's pitfalls before that I think we and many others can fall into. But one other disclaimer I think is worth mentioning, especially these days where there's kind of this, culture, if not a growing cult of productivity and efficiency. And I just want to point out that, uh, you know, one big thing that I've come to realize is that like presence and connection is a lot more important and rewarding than productivity. And, you know, when the culture might want you to measure your worth by what you crank out and how efficient your earnings, your ability to perform this or that. Um, this stuff um, isn't like the, <clears throat> in, in my opinion, the valuable stuff to really have on the, to worship and on the altar of your life. Yeah. And uh, um, because it, it can really erode the things that make life meaningful, like having, like you said, the time and space um, that is important for wonder, joy, connection, and and all that really good stuff. Yeah, it's such an important disclaimer, you know. It, and as as mental health professionals, people who are interested in helping others um, in personal development, it's you don't have to look very hard to mm-hmm. find the potential pitfalls of an obsession with um, self-actualization or refining and perfecting oneself. Uh, and there is almost like a cult of a cult mindset around personal development or self-development. Mm-hmm. Um, almost like this, this sense where you, you have to wait to live until you've got it all figured out. You have to wait to live until you've got yourself totally perfected. Um, like you said a second ago, how you live your day is how you live your life. Uh, 
I don't think it's super healthy to, to have that mindset where you have to wait to live. Like life, what is the phrase? Like life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Yeah. So as you're saying, bringing present moment awareness to, and and uh, I would add to that, like savoring, mm-hmm. mindful appreciation of what is already in your lap is an important part of that zooming out process I was talking about. Yeah, we might talk a little bit in this discussion about time uh, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, how tricky that can be. But what you said about savoring and enjoying, I think, is is crucial. That aspect of mindfulness can really make it worthwhile. Like, what's the point in accomplishing X, Y, Z or manifesting these things into your life if you don't have the time and capacity to feel them, enjoy them, um, you know, or else what, what's it for? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes I like to think of this in terms of the fuel that you burn to, um, uh, in service of change, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, a lot of you listening can probably relate to burning what I would call dirty fuel. I think I've used this metaphor on the show before. I use it with a lot of my clients too. Um, like the fuel, an example of dirty fuel would be the fuel of insecurity, So I've got to make X amount of dollars. I have to get these types of rewards. I have to get certain accolades from my peers. I have to uh, prove myself in a way. And that's hot fuel. I mean, you can burn the fuel of insecurity. Uh, You can burn it hot and burn it fast. Let me, well, you finish. Then I want to challenge it or ask a (laughs) question or two. (laughs) Yeah. So I've just, I've noticed that like if it's the fuel of I'm not enough and tell, uh, and so I'm going to, I'm going to refine myself and I'm going to grow, um, mm-hmm. so that I can be enough so that yeah. I can be validated, accepted, finally prove my dad wrong or, you know, whatever it is that's driving that. Yeah. It makes sense like, and feels right intuitively, but maybe you can help me reconcile it with this other idea I've been playing with is, is that you can use emotions to fuel change. Mm-hmm. Like there was a study that came out recently I think out of Texas A&M, I don't know how recent, but they actually did these paradigms and tasks of um, triggering anger in people Mm -hmm. and showing how that fueled um, accomplishment of a goal or task much more. They also looked at like voting, like they did this survey of of voters and, and saw that if there was anger about who was going to or might be elected, then uh, that sprung people into action. We Mm. know from emotion-focused therapy, emotion science, that anger is an approach emotion, for example. And what you said about proving someone wrong, I wonder about that. Like someone says, you can't, you'll never do this or whatever. Um, I do notice that in me and in, in many others I've heard from, that can spark fire that you do want to prove them wrong. And how do you know if your fuel is dirty or if that's a good fuel to burn? You're like, burn it and show, show them because it's in line with your values, perhaps. (laughs) Well, there you go. Right. I think that's one of the ways you, you can tell the difference between cleaner, cleaner, dirty fuel. An emotion in and of itself isn't clean or dirty, right? Anger isn't necessarily a dirty fuel, for example. Yeah. We need it. It's more, what is it in service of, right? If it's in service of your values, uh, like let's say anger in defense of a person or group of people that you really care about mm-hmm. or anger in defense of a boundary of yours yeah. that's been violated or crossed, then yeah, you can certainly burn that fuel and burn it cleanly. 
it's kind of like the, the idea of it being dirty is what is the collateral damage done by burning such a fuel? So back and what's to the, your intention, right? Exactly. Yeah. So back to the idea of, you know, insecurities. If I feel like I'm not enough and uh, that feeling of not enoughness becomes the fuel that I burn, it's likely I'm going to be trying, I'm going to mix metaphors here, but I'm going to be trying to fill a cup that has holes in it. Mm-hmm. That I'll always be, feel not enough because my, my intention is to maybe be perfect or you're, to prove something to somebody that isn't paying attention, for example. Your dirty fuel gas tank has holes in it yeah. <laughs> leaking all over. Yeah, we have two problems there, right? <laughs> for some reason, it reminds me of that scene in Zoolander at the gas station where they start having a fight with the gasoline. <laughs> the it's it's a tragic ending to that scene because someone throws their lit cigarette and it blows them all up. And all these people die, yes. <laughs> very morbid. <laughs> Good from, movie, from though. <laughs> I was quoting Zoolander this week to my wife. I put it on the, a few weeks ago at home because the children just needed to see it. <laughs> we were talking about fashion or something, uh-huh. and, I, I, and I said derelict, and she's like, that's hilarious, derelict. I'm like, you've never seen Zoolander, have you? She admitted she has not. I'll th- I have to rectify that. What is this, a school for ants? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, such hilarious fun. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my take on dirtier clean fuel. And I think you can sift out the difference. Yeah, um, I like it. But like what you were talking about, what is this in service of my values, of me tuning myself more to my core self, my highest self, mm-hmm. or am I trying to tune myself such that everyone else will enjoy what I'm playing, but it's not, you know, aligned with who I really am. Yeah. Yeah. There's some important stuff there and a couple little thoughts, semi on a semi related note of, um, fueling your change with emotion. Um, another way is fueling it with play. Mm -hmm. I think I put this on my Instagram story the other week of, just a statistic around how much more likely you are to learn a skill quickly, efficiently, if it's done in a spirit of play and and enjoyment. Um, And then on the flip side of that, it's striking to see how much getting distracted during a task erodes your ability to finish a task, learn a thing, or uh, acquire a new skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I th- when I think about the play aspect, it, immediately what I thought about was like the work aspect as well. So if we're like bringing a yin-yang, I guess, approach to this, if you're trying to acquire a skill, one of the things we do know is that skill acquisition is more effective and more efficient if you're taking a deliberate, they call it deliberate practice, right? Mm-hmm. A deliberate practice approach where you're pretty clear on which behaviors are going to, uh, like what's the 80-20 rule applied to this? Mm-hmm. What is the 20% of things you can focus on that's going to lead to 80% of your results? Is that the Pareto principle? Pareto principle, yeah. yeah. The idea of deliberate practice, I think uh, that book Peak, Anders, is it Anders Erickson? I can't remember who the author is, but um, popularized it. It was him who came up with the 10,000 hour rule that Malcolm Gladwell made popular in, in his book. I think he was Outliers. Outliers. I love that book. Um, but it wasn't his, it wasn't Gladwell's original idea. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think Gladwell missed was this aspect of deliberate practice. Those 10,000 hours weren't ca- casual 10,000 hours. Or maybe you don't need 10,000. You might not. Right? Yeah. Especially if it's this focused deliberate practice. Yeah. That's something that's I've seen is so true in a variety of pur- pursuits. Some like, 
almost any pursuit I look back on is you can practice mm, like half-assed mm. and make a little progress and that adds up over time or you can really through some of these things we're talking about uh accelerate it um through these things like playfulness and passion emotion flow um, minimizing distraction that would just take you out and you have to restart that momentum mm. i think what you're talking about is a really good measuring stick for whether or not this is a change that you really want to make as well. Kind of taking a few steps back to the yeah. start of the conversation. Because if it doesn't feel playful, at least at some points, if it doesn't feel flowy, you know, like you're talking about, um, then maybe that's a sign that this, I mean, it could be, not necessarily, but it could be a sign that this isn't a change that's necessarily aligned with your values or a change that you really want to make. Maybe I'm in a confrontational mood, or, but I've also just been, <laughs> I've been... <clears throat> wrestling with these concepts a lot lately because I think this topic hits home for both of us um, on a personal front and in people we work with, um, you know, self-awareness, self-development in a good and lasting way is, uh, I think, an important, meaningful pursuit in a, if it's balanced. But but I'm so curious about the tasks, the tasks that are hard that I find myself avoiding over and over that I know need to get done. Like it could be <clears throat> like doing your taxes or mm. cleaning out your garage um, because it is an important value of your life to have things in order. Yeah. And... Like tending to the gardens of your life that might be unkempt and um, can really be energy leaks mm. um, mm -hmm. or, uh, lead to chaos that kind of spills into your life. So how do you tease those things out? The tasks that are just too hard and maybe you're trying to approach in the wrong way, whether it's not in bite-sized chunks or the wrong time of the day or whatever, or your plate's too full versus following your bliss, mm -hmm. like Joseph Campbell would say. Well, let me, let me do the annoying thing and put it back on you. So when when you um, are looking at doing your taxes or cleaning your garage, like what's the nature of the resistance that you run into? What's it feel like? Um, so it's a good, it's a fair question. And I think there are two things that come to mind is um, the overall busyness or pull of other things. And that might be the pull to do the path of less resistance mm. things. Mm -hmm. And I am starting to think that the way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time and not in one fell swoop, right? Um, and there is something about this, like get the hard stuff done early in the day and don't try and do too many things mm -hmm. in a day that I'm really trying on and and seeing, reaping some rewards of, but... But uh, procrastination is something that I've just been curious about since college, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, um, why does that show up sometimes for everyone in some way? And uh, how do you approach it? And why are, you know, how do you approach the really boring tasks that need yeah. to be done? <laughs> well, there are some boring tasks that just need to be done, right? But when you said follow your bliss, sometimes I think about bliss being on the other side of struggle. 
Mm-hmm. So if you have a good handle, a good grasp on the bliss of, to use your examples, um, of having an orderly garage or having your taxes done, then it might help you take that first bite of the elephant or to, to use another animal. There's a, uh, like a book called eat the frog about productivity yeah. that talks about what you referenced earlier, like doing the hardest thing first, the thing that yeah. is, it represents the most resistance so that everything else feels easy or irrelevant mm-hmm. after it. But yeah, I think if, if you have a good sense of, of that bliss, then maybe it helps you take that first step into, or take that first bite of the elephant. The long game of bliss, mm-hmm. like hence the need to take the time and space, like you mentioned, to know your values and priorities and filter everything through it mm-hmm. and uh, reinforce the the drive to eat the frog and do the hard thing based on the bliss that may not be immediate rewards, mm-hmm. the longer term stuff. And I know. think be flexible too, because I think, you know, my values and, pri- and priorities have changed. They change, they can change within the day, but they've certainly yeah. changed over the years. Yeah. And, and it, let them change, but yeah. check in on them. Yeah. Yeah. So to be flexibly oriented towards your North Star, I think makes a lot of sense when you're trying to make changes that stick. Without bouncing around, because that's a, another pitfall, is changing priorities way too much. Kind of like people bounce around from one therapist to the next mm. as soon as things get uncomfortable. Maybe a similar phenomenon, but there's something about stick like even with less deliberate practice or efficient work, chipping away at something, the elephant gets eaten eventually mm-hmm. one bite at a time if you stick to it. Mm-hmm. You yeah. have to remind yourself that you want to eat that elephant sometimes, right? Yeah. Like you said, it's it's sometimes the discomfort that throws us off the scent. Um, and a lot of changes, changes worth making are going to involve some discomfort, right? Especially if we're stepping yeah. outside of that comfort zone into the uh, sort of the opaque mist of, um, of the unknown, mm-hmm. right? Maybe you have an idea of how you want to change a, you know, a career that you want to forge or a relationship that you want to win, that you want to, um, I was going to say win, but <laughs> a relationship that you want to have, there's going to be, there are going to be some, some steps that require faith that require trust and you betting on you. And I've never felt a hundred percent confident when I've made those steps, but confident enough that I'm willing to take the risk. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Um, I'm thinking of that Indiana Jones scene where he's, you know, takes the step out into the crevasse and there's the, the bridge that he didn't see before. That, uh, that place of uncertainty or however you put it in an eloquent way, that misty opaque <laughs> unknown is, um, by definition, uncertainty is uncomfortable. I think it was the other day I, sent you this mantra. I was like, maybe I should tattoo this on myself. Seek discomfort. Because, um, and we could talk about the value of kind of mantras or saying things out loud or whatever, but but I love a good reminder to turn towards these things that are important to you and are consistent with your values, especially these days in such a distracted age where there's pull of technology and culture and conformity and expectations and everything else where if we're not careful we're just going to get sucked into 
a life that's not ours. Yeah, I think it is really hard to do that nowadays. In fact, I was just talking to my coach about um, how to keep my primary values salient, moment to moment, Mm -hmm. day to day. And for me, it involves like, it, it's part of my daily meditation routine. Um, and I just call it recalibration. Uh, and I feel like calibration is a good word for me because I get sort of like, like an instrument that you use uh, to measure something. If it's, yeah, I like if it. it's not calibrated correctly, then you're getting false readings. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm, if I'm doom scrolling TikTok or I'm, you know, allowing my mind to be influenced by, by so-called influencers who aren't in alignment with my particular value set or where I'm trying to head, it's not hard to get pulled out of alignment or out of calibration. Yeah. Yeah. I I like that and think about that a lot as well, that concept of recalibrating oneself. And you know, what I've uh, landed on as a practice that's been helpful, uh, maybe similar to what you're describing is in my morning meditation or evening the night before, um, in reflecting on the day, I'll make sure to get out a fresh three by five card mm. and put those few things on it, like values, priorities, and a few key items like tasks. And just the fact, the uh, act of writing it down, um, even if it seems inefficient to write these things over and over, it's like how I get my hemispheres in sync and my whole body on board. And if I want to get, you know, extra intentional about it, say it out loud too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that approach. Like to me, it, I do that, not, not the three by five card, but writing it down. Mm-hmm. I also like going back and looking at how those things have changed for me. I was reviewing some journal entries last week from years ago. Um, you know, values that I had or goals that I had, um, things I thought I wanted to create. And it was fun to contrast that with where I'm at now Yeah, and to see how I've grown in some ways, how I've accomplished some of those goals, but also how some of those goals are just totally off the table. And I'm not even that guy anymore. Like we talked a second ago about about identity and we could probably talk more about that Mm -hmm. with respect to changes, but yeah, like those particular goals don't even sync up with who I feel like I am now. Yeah. Um, it's interesting in the distracted age, um, like when you go to get out your phone, like this happens all the time and I'm catch getting better at catching myself though, is like, I'll be working on something and maybe someone tells me something I want to put it in my calendar, but I find myself, there's the text app open from mm-hmm. when I last opened my phone and unread messages or there's social media or whatever it is, or a notification, notifications are, uh, are a tricky one to navigate, um, that, that pulls you away even from that immediate thing that you're going to do. And I almost laugh at myself when that happens. I was like, wait a second. I almost just got derailed within 30 seconds Mm -hmm. of what I was trying to do. But you know, some, some apps are approaching this to try and get us stuck without good intentions, like, you know, social media, there's all these uh, kind of social media lawsuits or discussions around like getting teens addicted and Mm. what it's doing to their mental health. But if you look at what's a good example, like Duolingo, for example, apps that have 
used this in a way to support someone in their goal of learning a language. Say you want to learn Spanish, and that's a big elephant, and you can't just do it immediately. Something like Duolingo breaks it into these bite-sized pieces for you, 15-minute chunks. It gamifies it, mm -hmm. playfulness. And so you're getting these XP things. Mm -hmm. it, it speaks to like the the gamers, um, RPG, and things that get people coming back and, and excited. And then you want to see your number go, go up. And then they also have like notifications at the right time um, with these uh, rewards. And, um, and I think that's, uh, those things are working. I mean, there's a reason people are turning more and more to that to learn a language and why it's helping so many people. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think you can learn from the way those apps captivate you and you can apply those principles mm -hmm. to changes or habits that you really want to make so that you're, you're setting the target and aiming for it. I mean, the, the people that design those apps, they know habit science and behavior science as well as, the, you know, the best researcher or psychologist out there. Um, in fact, I was, I, was, uh, re, I was revisiting some of the work in James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, yeah, that's um, a good one. when I was thinking about this episode. And it is a really good book. I mean, it's, it's kind of the, the most accessible, I think, book on habit change and habit formation yeah. that's out there. And in there he talks about the habit loop sort of the four stage habit loop that starts mm -hmm. with a cue and then that cue leads to a craving and that mm -hmm. craving leads to a response and then that response, you know, leads to a reward and then it starts yeah. over again. So he talks about the cue and making that cue obvious. So the, the notification is a good example on your phone of an obvious cue and these apps will do everything they can to make it as obvious as possible. Mm -hmm. The way the color that it is, the sound that it makes, the language that's included, and then they connect that that obviousness to something really attractive, like, oh, I've got to go visit my Clash of Clans <laughs> clan because my friend just notified me that they did a battle or whatever. It's been a while since I played that game. but mm -hmm. um, And then they make it really, really easy uh, to go in there, to log in, and to do the thing that you want to do that is also very, very rewarding. So think about how to apply that to the things that you want to, the habits you want to form in your life. And you can also flip it upside down for how to break habits that yeah. you have that are unsatisfying. <laughs> yeah, I remember going through my phone and uh, taking notifications to almost an opposite extreme where mm -hmm. I uh, had to work for a while to get our Microsoft Teams notifications back because I had, to, <laughs> you know, accidentally went into a hyper-focus mode that, um, you know, it's, it's a tricky balance because uh, notifications do get so overwhelming at times you can't sift through the noise and get mm -hmm. the good stuff. Um, but there are also some tools in this day and age where they're really needed that are coming out. Like there's one I heard about, I haven't tried an app called one sec or one second or something, but what it does is on certain apps where you might be prone to get sucked in, it'll just pop up and insert a, a few second pause. Hmm. Um, and we know this from like, you know, therapy and helping people with um, changing patterns, addictive behavior patterns, especially, um, there is great value in inserting a pause between that stimulus and behavioral response. And we can use those kind of things in day-to-day -day life too. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm working with clients who are trying to 
you know, eliminate these old patterns and start new ones. Um, I'll, I'll talk about just like putting in that time gap, taking a breath and then asking so that they're not as jerked around by their conditioning, right? Instead they can be pulled or pushed by something like we've been talking about that they really, really want to develop or have in their life or cultivate um, or step into. Yeah. Uh, but that pause. And I think mindfulness cultivating the skill there's lots of things to talk about with respect to mindfulness but the skill of pausing of zooming out um and looking at the the immediate moment like okay i'm feeling this feeling i want to engage in this behavior is this something i really really want to do or is it just a craving and so we're talking about making changes stick and uh one might assume that it's about making changes around you know, something you want to accomplish or a new habit skill or whatever. But what about um, acquiring the skill of inserting a pause? Like Mm. how would you recommend to someone that they acquire that one? Yeah, I think one of the things you can do is um, practice pausing deliberately in um, like a mindfulness meditation. So um, not to sound like a one-trick pony, but yeah, it is a deliberate practice. So anytime you do a simple just watching your thoughts type mm-hmm. of mindfulness meditation, you're going to notice cravings or desires for novelty or for something other than being there in the present moment with your breath. Monkey mind The stuff. monkey mind. So using the mind to watch the mind, I think can be a way to cultivate that pause or to, I guess, flex and build that pause muscle. So I might, I'm meditating the other day and, um, I'm just trying to focus on my breath. That was the anchor point that I chose. And then I have this thought of like a to-do, like, oh, I need to do that thing. And my, the inertia of my nervous system was like, go do it, right? Mm-hmm. I can feel it buzzing in my, in my nervous system. Instead, I'm breathe, pause, and then just trying to observe the discomfort of not engaging yeah. in, the, in the sort of almost compulsion. Yeah, that's, I agree. That's like the laboratory where... You can work on yourself the best is in those deliberate settings of like your meditation practice or whatever it is for you. Like mm-hmm. I, I find a lot of that on, on a yoga mat as well, for example, or even when going through uh, day-to-day life by just saying, okay, I'm going to be intentional about this phenomenon for the next hour. As I go into this meeting, mm-hmm. I'm going to see... Mm-hmm what happens to my presence. Um, uh, or, you know, as I'm in the grocery store line, I use that example sometimes, but just like standing there, um, where does the mind go when it can just go anywhere and goes lots of places. (laughs) (laughs) But I think your question about how to cultivate the pause is actually a really, really important one. Mm -hmm. And it's one I get from a lot of clients that feel, um, sort of at the mercy of their impulsive behavior, thoughts, feelings, their compulsions, I was working with a client a while ago on um, sort of explosive anger. This person would just sort of explode uh, in response to certain cues and felt very powerless in the presence of that explosive anger. So we did a lot of things, but one of them was every day uh, a short practice where he imagines a trigger, Mm -hmm. feels the anger and frustration that bubbles up just by imagining the trigger, and then breathes and pauses with the feeling itself. Because a lot of times these feelings will come up and will immediately have a behavioral response, 
right? There's that action tendency that follows a feeling. Mm-hmm. And if you can practice instead, this is like basic conditioning principles here too. You just practice instead. The next thing I do when I get triggered is not shout or name call, it's breathe. Then you can start forging a new pattern yeah. in reaction to your feelings. Yeah, I remember when we were um, first, uh, well, like doing some ketamine assisted therapy studies a couple years ago and developing some protocols and we we were using the process of emotional Mm self-exploration trigger work if you will a lot with people and and it was so uh helpful for people that i started trying it on by default in day-to-day life and it was really fascinating to see how like that kind of like conscious um, dabbling could become uh, a practice and then could become like second nature. It's not always the case, but uh, when triggered, I just find myself way more often being like, oh, cool, here's a trigger, an opportunity mm-hmm. to see the internal mechanisms of vulnerability, it's something that's going to show me my work. Awesome. Let's mm-hmm. Let's use it and look at that. Like you said, take a breath, um, maybe even take a moment to go back and trace it back to an earlier time that you were, um, you felt that way and or got into the fe- feelings underlying that and then uh, bring it back to the here and now, make a conscious choice of how you want to show up. And, and I think a lot of this, um, we're talking about making changes stick, but for me lately, it's the changes I want to make, uh, tend to land around how I want to show up moment Mm. to moment in the world more so than checking boxes or accomplishing things, you know? Yeah. It's that difference between a human doing or a human being, right? There, you can be preoccupied with the doing, like what are the specific things and actions I want to take? What are the specific behaviors I want to manifest? Mm -hmm. And maybe those can be in the service of human being, but when you focus more on what you're saying, like how do I want to be in the world? What version of me do I want to spend the most time being this idea of core self or, you know, capital S self? Um, Yeah. I I think, yeah, you lean toward more toward that. And the process you describe works, by the way, like (laughs) for for making changes stick. Like I, I think of all the work I had to do to first notice for example, that I didn't accept compliments. This was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I could get a compliment and I would immediately deflect it or make some self-effacing joke. Um, and then, so I, I became aware that I was doing this and that I wanted to change the way I was doing this. So I went through the process that you're describing here. And um, and so at first I would just notice, I'd get a compliment and there would be that initial like, oop, you know, deflect that, make a joke about whatever. Mm-hmm. So then from awareness, I went to experimentation. I'm just going to experiment with instead saying, thank you. That means a lot. Yeah. Started doing that. Noticed how uncomfortable it made me feel (laughs) to say that. But now that's become second nature. That's usually what I say now when somebody pays me a compliment. And it feels right. It feels aligned with, you know, who I really am. It took took time. Your beard looks good, by the way. Thank you. That (laughs) means a lot. (laughs) Whoa. Where's the See, there you go. the self-deprecating humor projection? Right? See, what I would have said before was like, oh, I, I know it's too long and I haven't had it trimmed in a while. And like, it looks like my head's been flipped upside down. I look like a makeup brush. Like I would have said all these things to deflect, but now it's like, I actually kind of like my beard and I appreciate the compliment. 
No, that's awesome. Man. And I dressed as a Viking for Halloween and I had braids and beads Whoa. in my beard and it was awesome. That sounds epic. epic. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, this reminds me of a, a couple other really important things that I feel like I'm starting to finally learn after maybe a decade long pursuit because we've, one of them is pretty obvious is just the, the importance of self-awareness and reflection. Mm. And the second is related is the importance of writing in that process. Um, for me anyway, is like, I've always been, um, bullish on this, like, you know, awareness is the single greatest agent for change. Mm -hmm. Right. But, um, awareness is also fleeting. And we were talking about revisiting journals and writing things down for the day. Um, you know, moment to moment, it's hard to carry some of these things through, mm -hmm. but, uh, whether it's uh, action-oriented stuff or revisiting the day or uh, reflecting on revisiting values, recalibrating or reflecting on how to show up tomorrow, um, writing down is, is one of the biggest things that's helped make it real for me. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Sometimes I think um, I'm an overthinker and I'll spend a lot of time just in my head thinking of stuff, but the best way to know what I really think or believe is to write or to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I Sometimes I learn who I am at just by having these conversations with you on the podcast. Yeah. This podcast has been a labor of love and also, you know, we hope a service to our listeners. But in a lot of ways, it's been a vehicle for personal growth for me. We should call it Finding Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Let's rebrand. Yeah, I love it. No, but I, um, it's one of the things I really appreciate about my relationship with my wife is I can I can go home and um, very vulnerably, thankfully, because of the amazing person she is, um, be able to just sort of talk about stuff. And then I, I'll learn what I think, what I want, what I don't want, simply in the process of a conversation with a good person who knows how to listen. Yeah, self-discovery. And if you don't have a wife mm -hmm. or... Um, or a supportive other who um, is in a place to listen and mirror and reflect in that way. Like you mentioned earlier in this chat, uh, a coach yeah. that you have, or there are lots of ways to find that accountability, um, you know, whether it's, you know, therapy, coaching, friends, or formal kind of circles of community gatherings, uh, and all sorts of other possibilities. There's yeah. a lot you can do on your own, but uh, there's no way I would have uh, been where I am now, enjoying myself in the way that I do, if it weren't for the help that I've received from others, whether it be yeah. loved ones, community, or the eight different coaches or therapists I've hired since <laughs> since I was a college student. Um, so I, mm -hmm. I try to practice what I preach. I mean, I'm a professional therapist, coach, whatever. Um, but man, I have received a tremendous amount of help from others, whether it be accountability, like you said, or just taking sort of the spray of thoughts that I give them. And because they know me and they can see the patterns I don't returning it to me, all distilled and organized in a way to help me think through things and then challenging me to step outside of my comfort zone. It's priceless, man. Yeah. And even that active listening and uh, kind of empathetic abiding presence that we talk about 
especially like in relationship, that practice of, okay, so let me see if I, if I understood right. You're saying this. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not saying this. That it's helpful to both people. Like you're clarifying the messiness of your own mind and they're trying to, they're really trying to understand and you're feeling more and more understood and such a valuable uh, dance, mm-hmm. you know, in any kind of relationship we have. Valuable for so many reasons, yeah. right? Um, but I guess relevant to what we're talking about now, certainly valuable for helping you get clarity on the changes you want to make and then making those changes stick. Yeah, and then uh, I I read once upon a time this funny saying that we write so our heads don't explode. It's also, you know, in addition to the benefits of gratitude journaling and whatever, it's also uh, really therapeutic for so many reasons just to spill thoughts out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you've got some changes in mind, you've done that zoom out process, you're pretty clear that this is a thing you want to grow into, a change, something you want to stop doing. It's aligned in line with your values. Get out a pen and paper, open up your laptop, whatever it is, and start writing about it. Yeah, and try and um, take on a stance of witnessing yourself through the day. Like slip into that witness consciousness seat, whatever you want to call it. Like that that equanimity place, that observer role, and uh, look at um, not just what you do, like because what we do makes up how we live our lives, but also like self-awareness, I think encompasses the sensations we experience, you know, the thoughts we have, but even beyond that, the stories we have about ourselves and then the strategies we're using to try and accomplish things. If we don't have awareness of those things, you cannot, you know, it's really hard to change them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, lots of tools out there to help one cultivate awareness. Certainly psychedelics are, can be one of those tools. Um, to really to experience yourself in a different way, a way that's hard to access through other means, not impossible, but hard. Um, couldn't help but make a psychedelic plug on our <laughs> Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers podcast. But Yeah. Um, powerful tool for a lot yeah. of my clients, been a powerful tool for me. Yeah, we've talked about kind of meditation practices and body-based contemplative practices, um, the self-reflection and journaling, the conversational, like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, going deep with those connections to learn about self and other, um, to discover things, um, and uh, the medicines that can, you know, take you outside of yourself for a moment and see with a new perspective. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned like connecting with others. I think, uh, spending time in communities or around people who aren't the type of communities or people you're used to spending time around. So anyway, uh, or in other words, seeking like novel experiences mm-hmm. with novel human beings is another way to generate awareness about stuck points, patterns that maybe you didn't have a beat on before. That's been tremendously helpful for me. When yeah. I've felt frustrated or stuck and not really known why or not known what I want to grow into, um, just spending time with people who live very differently or think very differently from me has been a great tool to start generating that kind of awareness. Yeah. Whether it's uh, far or near, big or little, like 
uh, going to another country is a big drastic one or but anything that gives you a radical change in perspective like go to the top of a mountain and then you know have a good session of thinking mm -hmm. and see what happens right yeah you <laughs> think differently i mean different kinds of thoughts mm -hmm. will come to you um it's hard to um it's hard to how am i trying to say hard to make a change with the same set of strategies that got you where you feel stuck right? yeah um or with the same perspectives and thinking patterns so to some extent you do need to shake it up a bit yeah like you were saying use the mind to understand the mind and and uh you know we don't have the best words to describe that uh self that's beyond the thinking mind because it was what did alan watts say ego the self which he or she has believed him or herself to be is nothing but a pattern of habits mm. and uh and that's not that's not certainly all of who you are it's not really who you are at all but that capital s self that encompasses you know your ego and your parts and your habits and patterns is uh yeah, really a place to try and slip into in more and more of your life to see see the big picture, you know, and if hold what, it. If what Alan says is true, then that should be encouraging. Because if you do want to make changes, we know that habits can change. So if you want to feel different, if who you if you want to like redefine who you are, um, at least the sort of the trappings of who you are, then that's doable. It's doable. You can change those things because a lot of us feel trapped. Like, sorry, I'm just this way. I'm just an introvert or just an extrovert, or I don't have those kinds of conversations. I don't do those yeah. kinds of things. Um, try the opposite. Try just this. This might feel like kind of trite personal development bullshit, but it, it, it can be really helpful just to like, just try on the opposite. So I am somebody who enjoys chit chat or <laughs> whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I am somebody who accepts compliments. I am somebody who is comfortable in social situations uh, and try on that new identity. And at first you're going to have parts of you that are like, no, 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 no. They're going to be in protests. And like we often say, you're going to bring curiosity and compassion to those parts while you move into these new contexts of behavior, these experiments, mm -hmm. these little intrapersonal, inter interpersonal experiments. And then with the mindful attention that you've described, you're collecting the data and then seeing how that felt. And do I want more of that or less of that? But I think identity is certainly a big, a big variable here. Yeah. And uh, what you believe about what's possible. I mean, we know this from the addiction literature. In fact, I saw the other day uh, a study that reminded me of this idea that uh, if you believe you can kick an addictive habit or substance, you are so much more likely to actually do that mm -hmm. than if you... Don't it makes sense, but sure. it's also a kind of a striking reminder, um, because uh, you know we know uh, far too well how many people have struggled to get rid of a really damaging addiction, but who have not been able to. Yeah, it's why I have mixed feelings about the "Hi, I'm Steve. I'm an alcoholic" kind of approach to addiction this identification as an addict. And I see that serve people sometimes mm -hmm. because if they identify I'm an addict, then I, I'm not going to do the things that uh, make it really, really likely for me to relapse, for example. Yeah. Um, accepting that about oneself, that I have this vulnerability. I have an allergy to alcohol and I can't ever have any of it. 
Um, so I do see the value in that, but I also see the potential pitfalls of identifying as somebody who just is this way. And it can, can chip away at what you're describing, sort of this belief that I can be different. I can be somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, um, and it's different for everyone, but something you have to go through and then transcend, whether Mm -hmm. we're talking about like a victim, uh, identity or, um, really getting immersed in healing work and going down to those, uh, you know, past wounds and traumas and everything. And, uh, you know, these addiction patterns we're talking about, you do have to eventually rewrite the narrative and step into that, that new self, that place of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So related to this identity, like, let's say you're trying to forge a new identity. Let's pick an easy one, like around, um, exercise. Like I, um, I haven't exercised in months. I understand the benefit of consistent exercise. I want to exercise. It can be really hard to start an exercise habit. It might mean waking up early. It might mean doing stuff that makes you physically uncomfortable. It might mean that you're sore. But if you say to yourself, I am a person who exercises, and then you reverse engineer life from that new perspective, what does it look like? Well, a person who exercises, you know, schedules an exercise class, or they set out their exercise clothes the night before, or they, they, on Sunday, they plan their week for exercise. They, they recruit an accountability buddy or they hire mm-hmm. a fitness coach. Um, but it can be a fun place to start from. If I am a person who exercises consistently, how do I then construct that identity? Yeah. Yeah. Cause we do, it sounds cliche, but we do create our own reality and, and manifest things in the mind first. There's a lot to back up the idea of kind of visualizing and cheering yourself on, speaking positively, stepping into that, uh, that, you know, superpower or that, uh, you know, superhero suit rather than taking on a defeated stance or um, approach in the world. It, it, it goes a long way, like these mantras, affirmations, and behavioral activations of putting one step in front of another, one foot in front of the other. Yeah, I think the, the affirmation stuff gets cliche, like you said, or cringy when it sort of just stops there. Bypassing. Yeah. yeah, people, I mean, the joke about things like the secret or manifesting mm-hmm. or vision boards is that you you put the, you know, something silly like the Lamborghini on your vision board. Silly for me, folks. If that's what you want, mm-hmm. I'm not going to judge. But And then you expect the universe to drop it off in your driveway because you're putting the quantum, you know, <laughs> your uh, intention into the quantum field and it can't help but return it to you. Yeah. Maybe there's something to that. But um, I think it's the behavioral activation piece that you were talking about that's really important. Yes, have your vision. Yes, have your, your ideal self, ideal life in mind. But then you, you do have to, you know, get your hands dirty and start taking those small, sometimes larger steps in service of that goal in order to make it real. Yeah, and it will take time, like, you know, persistence. We are habitual creatures, and and things will, you know, it's, it's important to know that things will snap back into place in the old ways until they're the new way, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. it takes repetition. Yeah. this Another thing I had in my notes about um, this identity piece, and maybe we've touched on it a bit already, but this idea that we've talked about on the show before of competing commitments. 
So mm-hmm. if you look at that from an internal parts perspective, we might have parts of us that are committed to things like safety or comfort. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be in direct opposition to the parts of us that are committed to growth or novelty or new experience. So when you notice yourself feeling internal conflict in the form of anxiety or fear or frustration, mm-hmm. it might help again to pause, zoom out, breathe, and bring that compassionate, curious, loving awareness to both parts. And the 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 sort of mind screw that I'll toss my clients when doing this is, can you bring gratitude to those parts of you that you're frustrated with, right? The part mm-hmm. of you that wants, for, for instance, comfort or familiarity. Because what if comfort or familiarity for you is picking the same bad, quote unquote, bad partners over and over and over again? People who mm-hmm. are a recapitulation of, I don't know, your relationship with <laughs> your mom or something like yeah. that. I'm so frustrated with myself for doing that. Well, why? Why is that part of you doing that? They might have a, an understandable reason. If not a healthy one, they might have an understandable reason, wanting you to feel safe, wanting mm-hmm. you to, um, to not get rejected or to not make a mistake that hurts. Yeah, in the uh, IFS training, I remember a lot of, of work that was taught and practiced on these polarizations that show up between among parts and... Um, and really, like you were saying, uh, creating the container for a good, you know, compassionate exchange with understanding about that and coming to an agreement. Because in the end, like the parts of us want the same thing, mm-hmm. like our, our well-being and that, that comfort and safety versus growth. And, you know, there is a middle path there, but it's not attained by brute force. Yeah, right? Like when when that is made clear to all the parts um, from self that we're all actually trying to get the same thing, then I think from the IFS perspective, that's when the self-defeating parts, some of the protectors or maybe the exiles, will um, unburden themselves of this old role and take on a new role. Mm -hmm. So the inner critic might let go of the role of making sure that you are perfect so that you never get rejected. And instead, take on the role of like trusted advisor, helping you be diligent, helping you be aware of, of uh, potential pitfalls, but without mm-hmm. that, that cruelty that an inner critic usually has. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad you brought up the parts work framework because that can certainly be helpful in what you started this conversation with of that to really take the time and space to look at, you know, take an inventory of your habits, behaviors, and 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 values and priorities and and that takes that takes time i think it was einstein who said like if he had an hour to solve a problem he'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes on the solution right right yeah well i think if you're going to do what you described earlier this sort of seeking discomfort it's going to be important for you to have a good a good handle or a good awareness around all the parts involved the parts that would show up to to prevent you from seeking discomfort or the parts that would be uncomfortable <laughs> if you're going to seek the discomfort of growth. So, yeah, I mean, um, I think the the concept of internal parts can be a really useful one when approaching the change process for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Taking an inventory of that symphony of selves and, and uh, getting everyone on the same team. Yeah. So other things with respect to making changes stick, the, the research done by, was it Carol Dweck who wrote Mindset? Mm-hmm. Um, 
the difference between growth and fixed mindsets. And there are some people who are just simply more prone to one or the other. There might be some genetic components or some early conditioning components um, Mm -hmm. around there. Uh, But it's really interesting to see simply the attitude you bring to a change can really determine whether or not that change is going to happen for you. And the attitude of, I am this way, I cannot change, or it's going to be really, really hard versus I'm flexible, I'm malleable. Hard work, deliberate practice actually Mm -hmm. pays off when I try it. Yeah. Yeah. When you make a mistake, is that an opportunity to learn and grow or is it a catastrophe that, Mm -hmm. that you get stuck in? Yeah. But there is a quiz that she has as a part of that or online that I think is really helpful. I've given to a lot of people in classes or groups um, to take an inventory where you're at and then just kind of working to gently shift the pendulum towards a place of growth. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if there's research on this or maybe she's done the research, but like what are the correlations, um, or the correlating factors for people who tend to have a growth or fixed mindset? Like, I wonder if people have a fixed mindset, are they more or less likely to have PTSD or addiction or to have trauma in their background? Um, and there, I, I, there's probably a chicken or egg issue. Yeah. Or to get there. stuck in, in those places for longer. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I know the research done on people who have been exposed to trauma mm-hmm. and whether or not those people develop PTSD. Most human beings who are exposed to, to events that we would call traumatic don't develop PTSD, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people do, but what's the difference? And a lot of it is sort of this, not only, but a lot of it is this mindset of, of, uh, resilience or flexibility or viewing it as an opportunity for growth. Admittedly, you don't have to view your sexual assault as an opportunity for growth in order to not have PTSD, in order to metabolize it and grow and heal. But it's one variable. Yeah. Yep. Um, no, that you, you mentioned, uh, Carol Dweck's book and we've mentioned Atomic Habits. What are some other books along these lines that you might recommend or that have been helpful for you? Anything come to mind? Um, the power of habits is another decent one. Uh, what's the, what's his name? Uh, Duhigg. I read that one before it came out way before atomic habits. And I remember reading atomic habits and thinking this one kind of replaces (laughs) the power of habits, similar content. Seven habits of highly effective people is one that classic. Yeah, it is a classic from, from a Utah local Stephen Covey. Yep. Yep. Uh, and, uh, that's one that I've revisited through the years and got something out of each time. Um, mm. but, uh, a kind of related, and I haven't read these in, in a while. And she, I, I, I guess I have read her newer book, but Brene Brown's Daring Greatly, mm. for example, or Gifts of Imperfection, um, help you embrace the vulnerability and courage needed to mm. do some of this work we're talking about. Yeah. Um, there are a few uh, so-called productivity books out there that I think if you approach in a healthy way with all the things we talked about, you know, the potential pitfalls of an overfocus on productivity, that can be helpful. I really like The One Thing. Yeah. Forgetting the author's name, but uh, just talks about the myth of priorities. You know, pri- this okay. priority should not be a, a plural, right? You have... One thing, and then like I mentioned, Eat the Frog is another time management book. But Mm -hmm. um, if you focus on the thing that if completed would make the other things on your to-do list less, if not irrelevant, um, 
or is the hardest thing, the thing that represents the thing you're resisting the most, but if done would provide the greatest payoff or bliss. And you just eliminate all distractions and focus on that thing. Yeah. Um, another one is essentialism, uh, by Greg McCowan. I like that. Really good one. Uh, I got sort of, again, a minimalist or focused approach to the things that move the needle the most in your life. Grit. Mm. I don't know if you've read that power Mm -hmm. of like both passion and perseverance in, in accomplishing like long-term success, Mm -hmm. whatever that means for you. Um, and, uh, thinking back a bit, I know the books like you are a badass by Jen Sincero, like helping get the confidence to fuel this, uh, kind of work or what was it, uh, the subtle art of not giving an F. Um, yeah, I've recommended that one to a lot of people. Yeah, I, like, I like Mark Manson. Focus on what matters and not uh, being caught up in what others think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really danger to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Another one is Deep Work. Mm-hmm. Um, shoot, who's that by? He's written a lot of books. Um, I was going to look it up, whatever you guys can Google it, but yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I like it because we spend a lot of time in what might be called shallow work, uh, just sort of ticking things off the to-do list. Um, And deep work requires time, requires space. It requires a certain mindset. And I think a lot of cool things, things aligned with who we really want to become and step into that becoming versus doing Mm -hmm. are on the other side of, uh, of Cal Newport. That was his name On on the other side of deep work. Yeah. No, that's a good, uh, a good collection. Um, I'm looking it up just to make sure I'm not wrong. <laughs> Deep work. Yes. I was so right. You were right. Cal Newport. Um, incentives. That's not a book. That's just something that popped into mm-hmm. my mind. That's <laughs> another thing that can help get us past that, uh, that force field, that electric fence of resistance. Um, I've heard people talk, people like Tim Ferriss talk about ways to incentivize oneself to do things that would otherwise be difficult. Um, and you can have the incentive of a, a reward. I remember one time I was, um, trying to kick my, kickstart myself back into a fitness routine and I, I got a jar, this was way back in the day and I put a, a line on the jar and then every time I completed a workout, I put a bean in the jar. And the idea was that if I filled the, the, the jar with beans to the line, then I would make a purchase, a self-indulgent purchase that I wouldn't just normally just make. I had to, I'd like earn it. And uh, that kind of worked. <laughs> What'd you buy? <laughs> it was a fitness watch, actually. It was, cool. a, which, it was the Phoenix 5, the nice. Garmin. Expensive yeah. watch, but I loved it. Yeah, so... How do we uh, sum this up or um, any thoughts on weaving this together? Yeah. Or... So again, I think if you're going to make a change, first zoom out, examine the assumptions. Is this change that you want to make a rejection of self? Is it in the service of what other people think you should do or become? Mm-hmm. Get clear and calibrate to your values. Um, so you create awareness around the change you want to make. And then there's a lot, there are lots of tools at your disposal to try to make a change that actually sticks, but it is more likely to stick if it's, uh, this may be sort of the, the really important point from today's conversation, a change will stick most likely if it is really calibrated to who you really are, or you're trying to become, 
mm-hmm. get less preoccupied preoccupied with human doing and more preoccupied with human being. How can I be in every moment in a way uh, that is true to who I really want to be, who I really think I am, or who I really want to become? And then you can use the different productivity hacks or tools um, or habit hacks or tools that uh, are in service of that ultimate goal. We didn't talk a lot about goal setting today. We've talked about it on other episodes. There are more or less effective ways to set goals for sure. But Smart goals. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good framework. Yep. But yeah, yeah, I like that. Like take, really start with the vision. Yeah, start with the vision and commit to that path of deep assessment and self-awareness that really takes time and calibration. Mm-hmm. And then like, yeah, set the goals, make the action plan, smart goals, whatever it is, um, the action steps, and then um, use all the resources like l- other people and tools and um, asking for help and, you know, trusting people have walked that path to with some input and advice, accountability partners, and especially tracking your progress. Like it's one thing mm-hmm. to write it down, but but uh, revisiting, reading it, and looking at how far you've come, or if you've been stagnant and why, and and recalibrating there, and and all this with, like Stephen Covey would say in that book we were referencing, beginning with the end in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I think if there's anything, at least maybe a little unique that we're offering to this habit formation conversation is is this idea of um, awareness, right? Of mindfulness-based, present moment, compassion-filled awareness Mm -hmm. that you bring to the change process. And the changes that I feel that have stuck have been ones that – I think are most consistent with who I really, really am at my core and or who I'm trying to grow into. Um, and then of course, like you just said, all of the other tactics can be more or less helpful. Yeah. No. And, and that's a, a really great point. Cause as I mentioned earlier, it's something that has really been alive in me lately is that, um, that being component or how do I show up or how do I how am I doing things like, uh, that are on this list? Like, and how do I move from one thing to the next next and a sense of softness, lightness, and, uh, and ease in the, um, in the busyness and bringing that loving awareness to the equation, I think is probably the most meaningful pursuit or intention. I come, keep coming back to more and more is how do I, bring that into, into my days more and more. And that's, uh, that's felt really meaningful. Well said. I think, uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks. Well, good chat, Steve. I'll talk to you next time. Next time. Psychedelic therapy frontiers is brought to you by numinous, a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel. Like the videos. 
and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.